The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. I think we have to recognize the possibility of a mini paradigm shift. The soft landing paradigm with the assumption that inflation was headed down to two in a tranquil, healthy, real economy has certainly been called into question, driven by labor costs in labor markets that are still tight, was still running above levels usually consistent with 2% inflation. So on the one hand, the recession risks look more remote, the inflation risk looks more real, and I think we've got to recognize what no one's talking about. There's a meaningful chance that the next move is going to be upwards in rates, not downwards in rates. You know, to use a metaphor, the worst thing you can do when the doctor prescribes you antibiotics is finish part of the course, feel better, give up on the antibiotics because you don't like taking them, and see what happens. The disease tends to come back and it tends to be harder to go after the second time. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. This week has probably been the most interesting week I've seen this year. It's not because of earnings disclosures, significant central bank remarks, or geopolitical occurrences. Rather, it's been marked by a notable rotation, the type that occurs perhaps only a handful of times annually. But before delving into what's happening beneath the surface, let's discuss the market movers of the week in the news. The key event this week was the Consumer Price Index announcement on Tuesday. It was hotter than expected for January that fueled selling in both the stock and bond markets. January's core CPI, no food and energy, was up 0.4% with the headline figure up 0.3%. The year-over-year increase for the core CPI went up to 3.9% when the forecast was for a drop to 3.7%. The 10-year Treasury note yield was sitting at 4.14% before the announcement and rose 14 basis points to 4.32%. The news was basically disappointing for those hoping to see the Fed cut rates sooner rather than later this year. Stocks were hit hard as well in the news with the S&P 500 down 1.4%, the Nasdaq down 1.8%, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 500 points. Markets were able to recover Wednesday thanks to a downward revision to the December Producer Price Index report, which showed prices fell 0.2% instead of a negative 0.1%. The market was also helped by comments from a very dovish Chicago Fed President, Goolsby, a non-FOMC voter who said, the Fed should not wait for inflation to get down to 2% before cutting rates. Goolsby also said that CPI data is at odds with market data. On Thursday, economic data played a pivotal role in helping stocks and bonds recover from earlier losses in the week, triggered by the hotter CPI figures. Despite a 0.8% decline in retail sales data for January, which was bearish, investors tuned in more to the decrease in jobless claims to 212,000 in improved manufacturing surveys from the New York and Philadelphia regions. This shift sparked a rotation away from tech stocks and towards sectors more sensitive to economic fluctuations, such as materials, industrials, 
and energy. The New York Empire State Manufacturing Index recovered from a negative 43.7 previously to negative 2.4, with the Philadelphia survey turning positive at 5.2 from a previous contraction reading of negative 10.6. The rally was particularly robust in the energy and real estate sectors, while major tech giants like Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon.com, and NVIDIA experienced declines for the day possibly due to profit-taking as the S&P 500 retested its 5,000 range or because of the onset of said rotation. This week, the energy sector led in performance, followed by materials, utilities, financials, and healthcare, with technology being the only sector to record a loss. It's quite surprising to see the energy sector as the best performer, given the incredible build in inventory data that was announced on Wednesday of 12 million barrels, which also followed a build of five and a half million barrels in the prior week. It was truly this rotation this week that I think was of major importance. Following several charts this week, I noted that many precious metal miners tested key support levels and reversed higher. It is much better to see these kinds of V-bottom reactions to support than if stocks linger near those levels for long. Additionally, when you look at several energy producer names, you see charts pressing against resistance after an accumulation phase these past few months, or even better, breakouts. Investors that have been patiently waiting for these areas to perform were rewarded with the rotation out of tech and into economically sensitive areas this week. That also gives us a lot more confidence after seeing the S&P 500 hit 5,000 that investors don't just take profits and hide in cash like we saw on Tuesday, but rather seek out value opportunities and rotate out of expensive tech valuations and into cheaper areas. Growth has outperformed value for 2024, but that may be changing this week. One week doesn't make a trend, but this is something I think nimble traders should keep an eye on. For my newsletter subscribers, I'm putting together an article talking about common beneficiary mistakes, so be on the lookout for that next week. But up next... This week's guest expert, Tom McClellan. Woody, can you tell us about quantum sensors? What are they and why do you believe these will be the next battleground over technology? Well, there's three primary domains to quantum information systems, quantum computing, quantum encryption, and then quantum sensing. And quantum sensing is much further along than other aspects of quantum technologies because you don't have many of the same challenges that you do with quantum computing. So you don't have the error correction or interference in keeping the qubits stable. So Quantum sensing is in testing right now. They're on the cusp of commercialization, and it's poised to make a big impact here over the next couple of years. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. In two years, the expiration of the Trump tax cuts may result in higher taxes for many Americans. If you're tired of paying more taxes each year and want to keep more of your hard-earned money, consider reaching out to Financial Sense Wealth Management. Our team can assist you in creating a personalized financial plan aimed at lowering your taxes both now and in the future. With a custom-tailored approach, we can explore various options such as tax-free, tax-deferred, and tax-sheltered strategies to help alleviate your tax burden. By reducing your taxes, You'll have extra money in your pocket that can be used for spending, saving, or investing. 
Take the first step toward tax reduction by calling Financial Sense Wealth Management at 888-486-3939. Remember, planning now can save you from paying more later. Financial Sense does not provide tax advice. Clients or prospects should consult with their own tax advisors to determine the potential tax benefits or consequences of engaging in a particular strategy or transaction. Well, the stock market is struggling to gain back the losses earlier in this week when we got a higher-than-expected inflation number. Where are we going forward from here? And what could keep this rally going or what could end it? Let's find out. Joining us on the program from McClellan Oscillator is Tom McClellan. Tom, you you sent us uh, an article and a bunch of charts, which we're going to put on our website. So if you're listening, you can follow along here. But I want to talk about one of the first charts, which was taxes will bite the stock market. There are only two fundamentals that matter when it comes to the overall stock market. You can throw out, you know, individual stocks, you, you want to look at valuations. But when when you look at the overall stock market, you can just forget book value and uh, earnings growth and all that stuff. Just throw it out. The only two fundamentals that matter are, number one, how much money is there? And number two, how much does that money want to be invested? So we see in episodes like when the Fed does quantitative easing or quantitative tightening, that there's a big change in the how much money is there part of that equation. We saw that also with how M2 has been wildly changing as Congress and the Fed were throwing money at the problem back in 20 and 21. And then as they started contracting the money supply, that caused us a bit of a bear market in 2022. One of the things that happened in 2022, though, is that investors suffered a bunch of losses. And because of that, there was a lot less collected during 2023 in the form of capital gains income taxes by the federal government. What that did was tremendously stimulative. It lowered the amount of taxes being collected to only about 16% of gross domestic product. That's a really low number. And that's another way of saying that Uh, rather than sending our money off to Janet Yellen for her to do silly things with, more investors were keeping money in their pockets and able to use that money to help elevate stock prices. Well, that's all going to change now because investors who who used all that money to lift the stock market during 2023, they helped buoy stock prices up. And now a bunch of people are going to have a bunch of capital gains taxes to pay. And that's going to come to bite us here real soon. If you, Jim, if you're sitting on a big capital gain that you've realized during last year, you're probably not going to be in a big hurry to get your taxes filed and write a check to the IRS. So you're probably going to wait until April 14th (laughs) or at April 15th at nine o'clock in the morning before you write that check so that you can still earn 5.2% on it in T-bills. You're going to, you're going to procrastinate. But when you write that check in April, that big honking check for all those capital gains you had in 2023, when you write that check in in April to the IRS, all that money that backs that check is going to come out of your bank account, which means that it's going to come out of that bank and banks are going to have lower reserves to help lift the stock market. And so there's going to be a giant flushing sound when all those checks start getting cashed by the IRS and the banks start suffering lower reserves. And it'll be just like another round of quantitative tightening when the Fed was pulling money out of the system and all those checks having to get covered are going to create a, a liquidity drain. What's more, 
is that your income tax return that you file in April and mine and everybody else's forms the basis of how we make quarterly estimated payments during the rest of 2024. So if you or I had a big capital gain that we realized in 2023, then that's going to affect the size of the check we have to write in April and in June and September and December. So there's going to be bigger than normal, normal quarterly estimated checks being paid all during 2024 reflecting the gains that people had and, and their taxes that got calculated in 2023. And so the, all those checks going to the IRS, that's good news for Janet Yellen and and not driving up the debt so much, but it's bad news for the stock market because all those checks are going to create a drain on liquidity. And that's going to create a, a, a big problem. I think the market is going to start perceiving that in March, but it'll really perceive it a lot in April and it's going to be a drain throughout this year. You know, another issue that is affected by these capital gains, Tom, is for those that are on Medicare, most people don't realize there's six brackets for Medicare premiums based on your income. And so if you did have a whopping capital gain last year, especially if you were in the Magnificent Seven, and that capital gain is filed on your taxes, you could be bumped into a higher Medicare bracket that you'll end up paying higher premiums for the next couple of years. So there's an added tax on Medicare that comes into play. And the physics term for this is pro-cyclical. When you have something that amplifies an effect versus dampening it, then you make it much bigger. Capital gains taxes do that. And so when we have a year like 2023 that saw a lot of capital gains that people are accumulating, and then in 2024, they have to pay a lot of taxes on those capital gains, then that paying all those taxes dampens the stock market, which reduces the amount of capital gains. And so we go back and forth between stimulating and retarding. Uh, it, if you have a dampening effect, it's a countercyclical effect, and that smooths out things. The Fed tries to be countercyclical with their interest rate policy to, to the best extent that they can, but they are only one force, and Congress does things, and tax Taxpayers do things and people in weird moods do things that all push the stock market around. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, that when you have these taxes, then it brings in more revenues to the government when you have a bear market like we did in 2022. The interesting thing about it is last year, California had a like a $70 billion budget deficit. And the main reason, Tom, is exactly what you're talking about, because California gets nearly 25% of its tax revenues from capital gains and option grants. And if we're talking about the Magnificent Seven, well, the home of the Magnificent Seven, with the exception of Amazon and Microsoft, is California. So when stock market's going down, options aren't getting exercised, people aren't taking capital gains, it's not only reflective of what we saw happen at the federal level, but you're also seeing it reflected here at the state of California. Yeah, sure. And part of part of what's going on is with these wild swings is that we overstimulated things in 2020 and 2021 because of COVID. So the Fed had loose policy. The Congress was spending money like crazy. Uh, and so that helped stimulate the stock market. We had great gains in 2020 and 2021, which in part led to people having to pay a lot more taxes during 2022. And as they were paying a lot more taxes during 2022, they were driving down the stock market because that money wasn't staying in the in the bank accounts and in the economy, leading to a bear market, which drove down 
uh, stock prices, and that drives down tax collections, both at the state level and the federal level. And so we have these wild swings back and forth just because politicians keep trying to stimulate things and help. And if they just simmer down and, and let the thing go and not try to touch it, things could could simmer down on their own and we could stabilize and have a much better time. But politicians think that uh, whenever they get to office, it's the worst situation. And, and thank goodness for history's sake that they are in position to do something about it. And they they feel like they have to. Yeah, they judge productivity in Congress by the number of bills that they pass. I want to change topics a little bit and go to interest rates. We were seeing in the fourth quarter, rates were declining. I think we got the 10-year note down to 3.8. As we're speaking on this day on a Thursday, Tom, we've got the 10-year note at four and a quarter. More importantly, the two-year note is at almost 4.6%. You've got the 30-year bond heading to four and a half. So what's your take? What's going on with interest rates? Are they going to head higher or are we heading a peak here? Where do we go from here? In the very short term, as we're sitting here today, I'm expecting a pause in the movements of long-term rates, just based on some very technical things that I talk about in my daily edition. When you get moving averages crossing, like we see, that tends to mark the end point of a move. And so you get a pause. The mission of that pause is to decide what's next. And, and I'm writing about that in my daily edition every day to see what long-term interest rates are going to do next. And they haven't given us a tell yet in terms of their chart action. Uh, generally speaking, I'm expecting long-term interest rates to come down a little bit. But I'm expecting, at the same time, I'm expecting inflation to go up this year, which is a very perverse set of expectations to put together. But that's what the leading indicators are saying. The inflation expectation for going up this year comes from watching global average temperatures. And inflation rates tend to lag whatever global average temperatures do by about three years. So three years ago, what was happening was that we were in a cooling phase as part of the El Nino and La Nina cycle. And when you have a cooling phase, that leads to higher inflation about three years later. And so we're due to experience that during 2024, which means that the Fed is probably going to think that they have the duty to keep trying to fight inflation, even though their efforts don't really have that much of an effect and they create lots of other problems. And so the Fed being overly tight is going to create more problems in addition to all the money that I mentioned before about that's going to be paying taxes. If the Fed was smart, they would just stop thinking that they know better. They would listen to whatever the two-year yield says and and set the the Fed funds target right at where whatever the two-year yield is, and they would do a much better job with interest rate policy. But they hell have expensive PhDs, and they think they know better than the bond market. And that's why we get to the best bad policy that we get where they are asleep at the switch cutting and they're also asleep with the switch when they're when it's time to rise. Well, speaking of inflation, let's talk about something that could have an impact on that. We've got rising oil prices. Where do we go here and what's your take on oil? I'm expecting higher oil prices for one basic reason. And that's because the experts I follow think that's what's going to happen. Now, let me tell you who the experts are. I, I Every week on Fridays in my daily edition, I look at the data in the Commitment of Traders Report, which is published by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And they look at the positions in all the different futures contracts that are held by futures contract traders. And they break down the groups of those traders into three different groups. The commercials are the big money, and they're the ones who use that 
subject commodity in their trader business. So if we're talking about wheat futures, then we're talking about Archer Daniels Midland, for example. We're also talking about a, a North Dakota wheat farmer who owns 7,000 acres of wheat. Uh, he's He is going to be factored as a commercial in that. The other two groups are the non-commercials, so think hedge funds, and the non-reportables, so small traders who have positions that are so small they're not even worth bothering with. The commercials are generally the experts. They know what's going on. They know what's an appropriate price. And in the crude oil market, the commercial traders are nearly always net short to varying degrees. It's been since 2009 that was the last time they had an actual net long position. So the, you got to have to adjust your expectations based on their past behavior. But the net, the degree to which the commercial traders or crude oil futures are net short is very small right now. In other words, the guys who run an oil field and they use the futures contracts to lock in pricing for their future production, they don't want to do that in crude oil right now because they, the experts, think that these prices are really cheap. And so why would they want to lock in cheap prices when they think that prices are going to go up later? When you see a condition like this, where the commercial traders have a very low net short position in crude oil futures, it is a huge bottoming condition for prices. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but in in a, in the really long term, this is a great bottoming condition for crude oil prices. Now there are lots of con lots of reasons why oil prices ought to be maybe going to go down. We might all start driving more electric cars. We might have an economic recession, which uses less energy. We might have peace breakout and Russian production comes back on. We have lots, lots of reasons why oil prices could go down, but the experts, the commercial traders, they usually tend to know better. And they are saying, this is not a price that they want to lock in to sell oil at. They'd rather let it float and, and get a presumably higher price later. And they are usually right when they get to a position like this. All right. Well, let's talk about another commodity, which is gold. I'm surprised that it's held above 2000 for as long as it is. But uh, are, are you following uh, what the commercials are doing in gold? Yes. And the commercials in gold are also net short mo almost all the time. In gold, though, they are net short to a, a somewhat larger degree than normal now. You can't look at the empirical number. You have to look at the chart and see where does the current position fall relative to the recent past. And the commercials are still net short to a fairly large degree. And importantly, the small traders, the non-reportable traders of gold futures, they are net long still to a very large degree. In other words, the small speculators are still terribly optimistic about gold's uh, fortunes, and that's not a good sign for gold. When the, when the small traders are really optimistic about gold, it's usually going to go down. When they all give up and get pessimistic and have a very low net long position, that's when you want to buy, and this is not that time. Gold is in the middle of the declining phase of its eight-year cycle. The eight-year cycle in gold prices typically sees three strong up years at the beginning and then a long meandering five-year downward phase. We are in the long meandering five-year downward phase, which is ideally due to end in early 2025, but it can be plus or minus six months on this eight-year cycle and still be normal. So this is not a great time yet to be a gold investor, but that time is coming. Ideally, early 2025, ideally January, but it's, again, plus or minus. And so you can't just chisel January 2025 onto your calendar. You have to watch what's happening. There will be a good, good upturn in gold coming. And I don't know what the news story is that's going to explain it, but this gold eight-year cycle has been working ever since gold started freely trading in the 70s, and it's been working pretty well. So we're looking for, forward to a great gold cycle bottom later this year or early 2025. 
2025. This is not yet the moment to try to catch that, even though uh, Druckenmiller apparently is jumping out of tech stocks and into gold stocks this week in the news. So that's interesting. I think he may be right, but I think he's several months early. So given this, where we are and the fact that come April 15th, there's going to be a lot of money coming out of the market that's going to go to pay these tax payments for last year's gains and also going forward because you're going to have to make quarterly estimates if your taxes went up considerably. What would you be doing right now given where the market is? Well, we're pushing near new all-time highs on most of the indices. We had one little swoon earlier this week when people got worried about the the inflation data, which was supposedly hotter than it was supposed to be, although it was still pretty tame. But people got in a mood and had a, had a big selling frenzy for one day, and they washed out the, the weak holders. I still think that the bullish seasonality that we're in right now is going to carry the market higher. I have leading indications talking about the market continuing higher for the next few months. The last half of this year, though, the second half of 2024 is looks to be a really ugly time for stocks. We are not there yet. We are not at the inflection point yet, but uh, sometime within the next two to three, four months, we will be at a point where you want to really get out and and your friends will call you crazy. You'll you'll be getting made fun of at cocktail party. You want, what are you doing getting out of this stock market? It's a great stock market. But uh, the last half of this year and into 2025 are not going to be a good time. And so you want to start thinking about how you're going to take profits. Hopefully you have profits to take uh, and you can pay a bunch of taxes for so that my grandchildren won't have to do that. Uh, but later this year and into 2025, not going to be a great time. So that's not good news for the administration up for re-election in November. And, and how does that play, Tom, with the election cycle? Generally speaking, when you have a first-term president in office, the election year is an up year. And that, so that's the condition we have right now. Biden is in his first term. He's running for re-election, as far as I know, although that's kind of in question. And generally speaking, first-term presidents usually win re-election. And Wall Street likes that because when you have somebody in office that Wall Street knows and they win re-election, Wall Street presumes that, okay, we don't have any risk of an unknown. We know what it's a defined quantity. We can get along with this. It's all going to be fine. So people generally rally stock prices during an election year. If you have the uh, a second-term president, like, for example, Clinton in 2000 or Bush in 2008 or Obama in 2016, that's a much iffier situation because you are guaranteed to get a new and unknown quantity. No matter who gets elected, you're definitely not going to have something that Wall Street knows and is familiar with. So generally speaking, in a second term presidential election year, which this is not, that's a much more iffy time and you can have a really ugly bear market. So the, how that differs this time, though, is that both of the, the leading contenders for running for president are very well-known quantities to Wall Street. So it's not like Trump is an unknown quantity. Wall Street thinks they know Trump because we just had him in office. And Biden's uh, supposedly not an unknown quantity, but it is kind of iffy as to whether he actually is going to run or is going to even make it to the end of his first term. That creates some iffiness, which disrupts the normal statistics for how first-term presidential election years tend to run. So I think you have to throw out the statistics on what it means to have a first-term president running for re-election just because things are so iffy and weird this time and not a, a conventional election year. But having said that, my expectation for an ugly second half of the year has been on the books for several years now, and that's because crude oil prices give us a 10-year leading indication for what the stock market is going to do. In other words, whatever the, tr the price of crude oil was doing 10 years ago, that's what the stock market is going to do. 
And that's been working since the 1890s. It's a miraculous leading indication. Doesn't always work exactly perfectly. Doesn't get the magnitude of the moves work uh, exactly right all the time, but it gets the timing pretty well. 10 years ago was 2014, and, and it was when the fracking boom was really going strong. And finally, OPEC gave up trying to defend against that and let prices collapse. So the collapse in oil prices that we suffered in 2014 is due to have its echo in the stock market in 2024. And that's the ugliness that we have. And that echo is due to last all the way to early 2026. Uh, not going to be a good time for whoever wins the election in November. And of course, the news is going to blame whoever is the winner uh, for, for causing that big bear market. But it's already been on the books and cooked in for almost 10 years now. Uh, and not much that the Fed or the White House can do about that. Uh, but there is things that we can do about that. As investors, we can try to seek to avoid that and look forward to a great buying opportunity around 2026. Tom, I want to throw one final question, if I may, because it seems to me what we've seen since 2020, we're echoing sort of a pattern that we saw between 1968 and 1982. We had short bull markets, long bear markets, back and forth, back and forth, and the stock market went nowhere. Do you see parallels and also the rise of inflation and the rise of oil? Do you see any parallels to that period of time? I do. Yeah, the 60s through the 70s all the way to 82 was a was a great time to be a market timer. It was not a great time to be a buy and hold investor. Uh, I have a I have an associate who was a broker in the 70s and I said, "How did you even get anybody to invest back then because it was just up and down all the time?" And, and he said there were two things that that could get people to buy. Either this was the right time or there's a hot new thing. But other than that, you can't buy and hold and win. Uh, during the 1930s or during the 1970s. We were due for that 40-year uh, cycle to work on stock prices in the 2010s, but it's been put off a little bit thanks to some engineering by the Fed pumping a bunch of extra money into the stock market and keeping things aloft, which arguably is great, but you do have to pay the cycles at some point. And so putting that off into the 2020s and having the looming threat of, of a world war uh, with everybody hating each other and getting uppity about each other, that, that's generally also not good for stock prices until the war starts. Once a war starts, that is terribly bullish because governments spend a whole bunch of money. Uh, as long as you're betting on the winner of that outcome, then it works great. 1942 was a great time to buy the, buy the lows once that war got started. But leading up to uh, the World War and, and World War II was a horrible time to be an, an investor. If we're leading up to another World War, which we're due for uh, here in the 2020s, then that's not going to be a good time. And in fact, th there can be a little bit of an interplay between those forces because when you have a bear market, you typically have an economic recession, and that tends to amplify the forces, the political forces of people agitating to, to think that it's a good idea to send people to go shoot each other. That's a horrible idea in my view, speaking as a West Point graduate and somebody who served in uniform for 11 years, I, I think agitating to go shoot people is a horrible idea and we ought to get rid of anybody in office who who uh, thinks that way and, and talks that way and acts that way. Uh, but those things happen regardless of what people might think or want. And uh, we have to be smart investors and get ourselves ready for that. I never knew you were a West Point graduate. I was. Yeah, I was happy to serve. Uh, thankfully, never got shot at. I served in the 80s and early 90s. Never never saw a shot fired in anger. 
I had a pleasant time getting stationed in Germany and California and Washington and all around the world and, and getting to do fun things. And then the army was shrinking in 1993 because peace had been declared and we were never going to have big wars anymore. So we didn't need this big army. So let's let everyone go. So I was part of that whole wave that we go through about every 20 years where the army lets go too many people. Then they realize, oh, shoot, we need we let go too many. Who wants to come back? And We've been doing that every 20 years for at least the last century. And so I was just part of the latest wave. And we'll do it again for every 20 years as going forward because politicians never learn. Well, listen, Tom, as we close, why don't you share with our listeners how they can find out more about the work you do at the McClellan Oscillator? Well, McClellan Oscillator is the indicator that my parents created back in 1969. And we use that, uh, we truncated it for our website. It's mcoscillator.com. Uh, for McClellan Financial Publications, mcoscillator.com. If you just Google Tom McClellan, you'll probably find me. We have a twice-monthly newsletter. We have a daily edition. Those are our subscription products where the good information is. We also have a free weekly chart in focus that you can sign up for. No strings attached. We won't spam you. And in fact, this week's article is about how taxes are going to affect the stock market, things that we talked about during this interview. Go take a look. We have a big free learning center, lots of information about all the indicators that we use. And uh, we're happy to get more people acquainted with them. All right. And once again, we're going to have the charts that Tom and I have been discussing during this interview. We're going to put that on the website as well. Well, as always, Tom, it's a pleasure having you on the program. And uh, we'll talk again soon. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk